Not too long ago, I had the opportunity to travel back to Zanesville, Ohio, a place where Nancy and I lived back in the 1970s. And we purchased our very first house over 40 years ago in Zanesville, Ohio. It was a farmhouse on about half an acre. And behind the house was the rest of the farm, beautiful meadow leading into uh, the woods. And uh, built probably 100 years ago, I guess. But it was our first house. And indeed, because it was our first house, it was a house that we really enjoyed. It had out uh, behind the house a shed that was probably used for protecting farm equipment. We put a little swing in there for our only daughter at that time, Carrie, who was 18 months old. Here's a picture of the house in the winter, about five miles outside of Zanesville, Ohio. The house was quaint, but the house was quirky. Because it was built in probably the 1920s, the walls were like a sieve, and the wind came through without much problem. There was an old coal furnace converted into an electric furnace that occasionally worked. <laughs> Nancy would, there was no washer and dryer, so she would have to wash the cloth diapers of our daughter in the bathtub. One day while washing dishes in the kitchen sink, a fish came out of the faucet. <laughs> it was a minnow. <laughs> One of the rooms was painted Pepto-Bismol pink. But we loved that quirky house because it was our first house. So I thought I'd go down memory lane just early this month, drove back down the five miles on Chandlersville Road, and to my surprise and shock, the house was gone. The farmland was pretty much developed. And someone had stolen our address. It was on a different house, 4355 Chandlersville Road. And for a moment, I thought, how sad. But I thought, there's also a message for me. You can't go back. The dwelling was deficient. And now, it's totally gone. And you can't go back. And as I'm going through the book of Hebrews, that's exactly what the author is trying to tell the Jewish believers who left Judaism, embraced Jesus, but were thinking about going back. A trip down memory lane. They missed the gatherings. They missed the sacrifices. They missed the teachings, perhaps, of the rabbi. All of that they longed for, but you can't go back. Because... In that day and time, the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, but in a couple years later, it would be totally gone. The sacrificial system was old, obsolete, temporary, and gone, and soon the temple would be gone. You can't go back, and why would you want to? Because what we have in Jesus is far, far superior. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, as we continue our study in this wonderful book, Hebrews chapter 10. And the argument that the author picks up in chapter 10 is the same argument that he's been dealing with in the last couple chapters. 
His thinking is not linear, where he starts and just climbs argument upon argument, but it's almost circular, where he makes an argument and then comes back and makes the same argument again, and then again makes the same argument again. And that's what he's doing in this chapter. There is very little new material in the first 18 verses of chapter 10, but that doesn't mean that it's not valuable or not profitable for us. But he's bringing the predominant argument of the book to a close in chapter 10. In chapter 11, he'll begin to talk about the uh, superiority of the principle of faith and talk about heroes of the faith and other things. But right now, he wants to emphasize again that the old covenant is gone. The new covenant is here, and it's much, much better. Look at verse 1, Hebrews 10, 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. And as well, we've already noticed, they're here. The good things are here, but they're still, some of them, yet future. It's a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Let me just state that the idea of the shadow, the law, means that it's temporary. A shadow's visible, but it's transient. It's momentary, ephemeral. You can see it, it's visible, but it has no substance to it. It makes, it makes you realize something substantial is near, but it's only a shadow of the true image the law, with its sacrificial system, the scripture tells us, is not the real thing. One scholar put it this way, the intrinsic inadequacy of the Levitical sacrifices is clearly implied by the necessary repetition of those sacrifices. And that's the logic of verse 2. I mean, if these sacrifices could have truly cleansed sin... Would they not have stopped? But by repeating them year after year after year, they only remind you that your sins aren't gone. The day of atonement did not declare the remission of sins. It was a day of the reminder of sins. Oh yeah, for a moment, they had done what God told them to do and there was outward ceremonial cleansing but in their heart, they still felt guilty. You know why? They still were guilty. You can tell a person they're not guilty, but in their heart, they still feel guilty. You know why? They are guilty. And the sin has not been taken away. The residue of the ritual was simply continual, constant guilt. Guilt. 
As we read back in chapter 9, verse 9, the sacrifices being offered are not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. So you have those who are drawing near, and that's a very important phrase. We see it in verse 1. We're going to see it later on in the chapter. The worshipers who draw near are disappointed. The craving of their soul is not satisfied. The aim of all of their efforts is not achieved. They've come to worship and draw near to God, and there's still a wall, and there's still a curtain, and there's still next year's sacrifices. It's impossible, it says in verse 4. And that could be written over every religion. It is impossible to take away sins. Whether it's an animal sacrificial system, whether it's a system of doing good and gaining points, whether it's a system that tells you by giving more you'll have God's wonderful favor. Whatever the religion is, it is impossible for that religion to bring you to God if Christ is not the heart of it. That's what the author is getting at. But now he does give us some new material, and it's quite fascinating. A quotation, an exegesis, an explanation, verse 5, of Psalm 40 and verse 6 through 8. Verse 5 says, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. The psalmist is putting these words in the mouth of Christ. In fact, these are words of the pre-existent Christ. These are the words of Jesus just before Christmas, before he comes to this world. It's a private conversation with the Father and the Son. Often we don't get to eavesdrop on the conversations of the Trinity, but here's one. And I don't know quite how it goes because God knows everything. And when we try to imagine what might have gone on, we're always wrong. But in some sense, the Father and the Son are talking. And Jesus says, I see it now, your will for me. You prepared a body for me. And it's not the old sacrifices that you delight in, but it's a totally new sacrifice. Verse 6 is Hebrew parallelism which simply means the same thing in verse 5 is going to be repeated again. So you, you start out with verse 6. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, O God. So it says in verse 5, you didn't desire the sacrifice. And then it says in verse 6, you were not pleased with the sacrifice, which emphasizes a very interesting truth. God's displeasure about our religious activity when Christ is not the heart of it. So the offerings uh, he's talking about are described actually in verse 8. This is a commentary on what he's just said. It's going to be like he's repeating the same thing over. But he says, first of all, 
Sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, even though the law required them. So this is God's will. They're required by God, verse 8 says. But he didn't desire them, and even more intensely, it says, he is not pleased with them. What does that mean? Well, there was a tradition that was emerging in the Old Testament, even while these sacrifices were being practiced, that God was not pleased. Listen to this, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or hearken is better than the fat of rams. Now this was Samuel, the prophet, speaking to King Saul, who had hastily offered a sacrifice to appease God, even though his heart wasn't in it. He said, I forced myself to do it because you, Samuel, didn't show up on time. And Samuel said, you know what God wants from you, O king? <laughs> he doesn't want your sacrifice. He wants your obedience. He's not pleased with that kind of sacrifice. Or Isaiah chapter one, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. But if you jump down to verse 19, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, still in that old covenant before the new, the blood of the new covenant was shed, he says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 33, to love God with all of your heart, with all of your understanding, and all of your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what God is after. That's more important than all the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. So God's displeasure was based on a system that he ordained when that system continued without obedience to God and Christ. God said the old system is done and you want to keep it going. <laughs> I've sent my son as the one and only sacrifice but you want to keep offering bulls and goats? I don't need more animals. That system is gone. If you're going to obey me, then trust my son. Because obedience is better than sacrifice. In and of itself, the sacrificial animal held no worth. It was only the value of the heart. It was the heart of the worshiper in obedience to the command of God. It, if I put a $20 bill in the offering box with a devoted heart, that's a greater offering than if I write out a check for $20,000 and put it in just to get a tax break. Now, please don't misunderstand me. <laughs> I'm all for tax breaks. I go to tax consultants all the time to see what else can I do 
But if that's your motive, or to ease a guilty conscience, if I pay God more, maybe he'll favor me more, you cannot bribe God. And that's why the widow's might was so valuable. God doesn't need your money. Have you ever heard a pastor say that? God doesn't. He doesn't need your money. God needs your heart. God wants your heart. That's what he wants. To obey from the heart is better than an outward form of sacrifice. So that's God's displeasure. He takes no pleasure in sacrifices that are divorced from a devoted heart. He takes pleasure in a surrendered heart. So what is God's delight? Jesus and all that he means. I'm sure you've heard this story before, but I love it. It's it's the story of a little boy in Sunday school. And the teacher is trying to get interaction with the class. And he's got an object lesson. And on the board is a picture of a squirrel gathering nuts. And I don't know what the lesson was going to be. But he says to the kids, okay, what do you see? (laughs) No one answers. Have you ever been in a class where you're afraid to answer because you don't want to look stupid? That was my whole seminary life. (laughs) I rarely answered questions. So no one answers. The teacher says, no, no, what do you see? And one little boy kind of, you know, shyly lifts up his hand and he says, well, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus. (laughs) Right on, kid. (laughs) He's the answer to every spiritual issue, ultimately. And, And when you ask the question, what does God delight in? Well, it's a body that he prepared for Christ. And a Savior who says, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. A body prepared. Now, if you are a student of Scripture, you're going to say, this is interesting. This is a quotation from Psalm 40. Let me read Psalm 40 and see what it says. And when you go to Psalm 40, it's different. You read Psalm 40, and it says, My ears you have pierced, not a body you have prepared. And to throw another wrench into the system, scholars say that may not be the best translation. A better translation may be, My ears you have dug open for me. Now, do we have a contradiction here in the Scripture? No. The more you study Many of these so-called contradictions have a clear and easy answer. Some of them don't have an easy answer, but someday they will be answered. But I, I think this is the best way to approach this. Remember that the book of Hebrews is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And sometimes the authors of the Septuagint added to the scripture. Now that was okay because they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're not adding to the scripture, they're giving more scripture. And so it's okay. You and I can't do that, but God the Spirit can do it. And so he's giving us a a little better understanding of what's happening here. But here are a couple possibilities. Number one, this idea of my ears you have pierced 
might refer to the example in Exodus 21 of the slave who had the boring of the earlobe, the earlobe pierced to declare that he was a forever slave. Uh, the, the idea of dedication and surrender to it. Or maybe closely connected with that, if the translation is, my ears you have dug out, it might be an idiom for creation. Don Hagner, a great Greek scholar, says apparently the Septuagint translation, the Old Testament translated in the book of Hebrews, gives an allusion to the creation of Adam, like the sculpting of a body from clay as ears must be dug out. Thus, he's translating an expression from a Hebrew idiom into language more easily understandable to the Hellenistic society of the day, which then would mean you've got this idea of creation, which then is not a large jump from a part of creation standing for the body, all of creation. Either way, it works. A body you have prepared for me, lo, in the volume of the book it is written, Jesus said. And I come as a disciple whose ears are open. Lo, I come to do your will. It's the surrendered Christ. The one who is given a body, as it says in chapter 2, verse 14, who became flesh and blood for us. He had to become human so he could die for humans. The purpose of the body of Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's why he has a body. And here's the discussion. The secret discussion between the Father and the Son. You've prepared a body for me. Okay, it's time. In the fullness of time, I'll come. Lo, in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I come to do your will, O God. And that's Christmas. Now, the displeasure of God is ritual without obedience. The delight of God is acting like Christ, where we embrace him, the high priest of the new covenant, and we act like him. It comes down to this simple obedience to do your will, oh God. That was the heartbeat of Jesus. He said it before he came to earth. I've come to do your will. I'm going to go there to do your will. On earth, John chapter 4, verse 33, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Remember that story? He's dealing with a woman at the well. Disciples go into town to get food. They come back. They're surprised Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. They're surprised he's talking to a woman. And they don't quite know what to say, so they say, would you like some lunch? <laughs> and Jesus said, I've already eaten. Who brought him food? My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Or in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Or Matthew 26, where Jesus is struggling in the garden. Father, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. Let this mind be in you, 
that was also in Christ Jesus. It was the mind of a humble servant who was surrendered to the will of God. Did you know that in the rest of the book of Hebrews, it's not focusing so much on Jesus doing God's will, but the same Greek word is used twice with, re twice with reference to us. Chapter 10 and verse 36. You have need of perseverance. The old King James uses the word patience, which is a great translation. What is patience? Endurance. In fact, sometimes it translates it patient endurance, which I really like because it brings in all of those ideas. If you're patient, you've got to endure. I could preach on patience every Sunday and 95 of you, 95% of you would need this message. You have need of patience. Pastor, you were speaking to me. That was easy <laughs> because we all need it. And I'd be speaking to myself as well. Why do we need patience, endurance? So that after we've done the will of God, and he doesn't tell us how long after, we will receive the promise. It doesn't take too much patience if Jesus says to us, you know, kind, kind of like Amazon, it'll be delivered to your house on Tuesday at 2. I don't really get too upset about that. They're usually quite quick. And they told me when they're going to come. And you know, they're almost always on time. In fact, they tell me they're going to come this day, but they like to bring it sooner just, you know, to make you think that they're really working hard for you. But what I need patience for is when God promises something and it doesn't happen. Is that your experience? You pray, nothing happens. You pray, nothing happens. You take the promises of God, you hold on to them, nothing happens. But when we get into chapter 11 of Hebrews, we're going to see people who prayed and prayed and prayed, but with patience they waited, and some waited and even died waiting and never saw the promises for themselves. You and I have need of patient endurance so that after we have done the will of God, we'll, we'll see what he has promised. Our responsibility is to do the will of God just like Jesus. And his responsibility is to deliver on time. Which he always does. Here's another verse. This is found in that uh, beautiful benediction at the end of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13. Let me read and I'm reading from a paraphrase here, verse 20 and 21. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with all you need for doing his will through the blood of the everlasting covenant between God and you. And may he produce in you through the power of Christ all that is pleasing to him, to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. The will of God, pleasing God, all brought back into the same context. So it seems to me that the author of Hebrews is not only showing them how useless the old system is because Christ has come, but also how God is pleased with his son and pleased with those who trust him and pleased with those who obey him. So you come to verse 11. 
Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why, did the, why does the human priest stand? It's not done. There's more work to be accomplished. Unfinished. And why does Jesus sit at the right hand? It is finished. Isn't that a beautiful phrase? There was a young guy uh, who grew up in a Christian home. His parents were gone. He was bored. This is before the internet. And so he went to the family library and pulled out a book. Because they were Christians, most of the book the books in that library at that time happened to be Christian books, and he began to read. And as this boy began to read, he was religious but not saved. And he came across that phrase, the finished work of Christ. He had never seen that before, the finished work of Christ. It's finished. And then suddenly it flashed in his mind another verse he remembered from John's gospel when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished. And this young man began to think, of him, think about the atonement of Christ. It's totally complete. It is all done. What is there left for me to do? And he said, on the one hand, nothing except to fall on my knees and trust Jesus. And thus began, began the spiritual life of J. Hudson Taylor, who became one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever known. The finished work. You can't do anything. Isn't that great? You can't add to it. If you tried to add something to it, you'd ruin it. It's perfect as it is. Accept it and embrace it. And that's what God wants for us. Many years ago, there was a small family, one son, father died, and the son and the mother had to make a go of it alone. This was before World War II, and they were fairly poor. Each night, they would spend time together reading or listening to the radio, and they had quite a strong relationship. But as the young man grew into his 20s, he met a girl and fell in love with the girl and decided to marry the girl. And the mom was all for that. But again, they didn't have a lot of resources. So she said, son, listen, when you guys get married, why don't you come and live in the first floor of our second story house and I'll live on the second floor. The only thing I ask is that we still can get together like we used to, at least some of the time. I don't know about you, but if I were given that possibility <laughs> when I got married in the 70s, I would have ran the other way. But the son said, you know, that sounds good. And it went well. The son and the new daughter-in-law spent time with the mom, and she would come from upstairs down. And, but then she wasn't asked to come down as much, and the calls were infrequent, and it was just different. The mother's birthday rolled around, and so the son said, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to 
spend some money and buy something really nice for my mom. So he bought her a dress, wrapped it up nicely in a box with a bow, and presented it to her upstairs one night. The mom opened it up, and she said, oh, honey, this is beautiful. But have you ever given a gift, and someone says, thank you, and you know that they don't like it? I mean, you can kind of read the face, you know. He said, Mom, what's wrong? Oh, the dress is beautiful, she said. Is it the wrong size? No, it's not the wrong size. Wrong color? I love the color. Mom, you can't fool me. Something's wrong. Why don't you like the dress? And she opened up her closet and says, I have enough dresses to last me for the rest of my life. What I really want is you. And when I hear that story, it seems like Jesus is saying the same thing down the decades of time to us. I don't need your sacrifice. I don't need all your busyness. What I want is you. Give me your heart. Let's pray. Lord, it's so easy for us to try to bribe you with our good deeds or somehow silence a guilty conscience by performing some spiritual act. And what we don't realize is that what you really desire more than anything else is not sacrifice, but obedience. Like Jesus, a heart that says, I delight to do your will, O God. And that's why I exist. Lord, give to us the sweet freedom of complete surrender to your sovereign, perfect will that we would rest in what happens to us. That we would not fear when bad news comes because we are confident that the one we trust in will take care of us. And because of that, we go forward. Lord, if you are displeased with us today, it's because we haven't acknowledged our sin. If you're displeased with us today, it's because somehow we think we can merit your favor. So bring us to an end of ourselves that we might turn from our sin with disgust. Realizing we can't go back, we must go forward and embrace the Savior. In your name we pray, amen. If you could open up your-